Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Many of us have heard about the dangers of too much sun exposure, and probably a lot of us have heard about the ABCs of melanoma. Today we're going to discuss how to know if that mole you're looking at is something serious, or if it's something that you don't have to worry about. And then we're going to talk about what happens next. What if you do get a diagnosis of melanoma or skin cancer? What happens after that? We've got a special panel of experts today. We have returning guest, Dr. Shane Morita, and he is currently working as a surgical oncologist at Queens Medical Center. But we also have Hawaii pathologist, dermatopathologist, Dr. Christopher Lum, and he's the guy that looks at stuff under the microscope, and he'll tell us what it looks like and what sort of new things are up and coming in the field of melanoma. And we also have Dr. Joe Ramos, and he is currently one of the uh, professors and actually the program director at the Cancer Biology Center at UH Cancer Center right there associated with the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So we're going to be talking about the whole gamut of what happens if that weird mole that you have looks like it could be something serious. And if it is, what happens now? What do we do? A lot's changed in the world of of cancer treatment for malignant melanoma, and there's a lot more changes to come. But this is going to be sort of an exciting way to hear about what's up and coming in the near future and even in the far future. Now, as always, we take your calls. If you or someone you love has had malignant melanoma, how have they done? And are they doing anything now to hopefully protect from getting another one? We'll talk about how effective that is, sunscreen, etc. We'll be taking your calls at 941-3689. Toll free from our neighbor island friends, 877-941-3689. Doctors, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thank Kathy. you. Now, let's sort of walk down a treatment path. You know, Dr. Shane, first I want you to tell me a little bit about what you do. And then when does somebody interact with you? When do they actually see you and do you provide treatment for them? So tell me a little bit about where your role is in the treatment of melanoma. Then we're going to talk a little bit about what it looks like. Sure. I can focus mainly on the clinical aspect, which is when someone is diagnosed with melanoma, um, typically by a dermatologist, um, it gets referred to me, and I remove the melanoma, but also determine whether or not it's spread to other organs, um, more importantly, uh, especially the lymph nodes. So I will do a procedure if there's absence of disease elsewhere in the lungs or liver, uh, a procedure called a sentinel node biopsy, where I determine whether or not there is spread to a lymph node before one can even detect it by feeling. And it gets analyzed by Dr. Lum, one of our dermatopathologists, and uh, he, d- he tells me whether or not there's spread of cancer cells, specifically melanoma, within a lymph node. If so, then we do more studies to determine if they're spread elsewhere. If not, then we go and do m- further surgery to remove the lymph node complex. So somebody comes in, sees their regular doc, maybe sees a dermatologist, and they have a weird-looking mole. Sure. And there are certain characteristic features of a weird-looking mold. We sure. sort of go through this mnemonic, the ABCDs of, 
your what we need to look at when we're thinking of skin cancer. What are those? Can you go through those? Sure. With us? So first of all, as you said, uh, with melanoma, it's typically involves the skin over ninety five percent. But just to again let you know that there's other sites that we need to be wor- you know worried worried about that we can uh, uh, sort of discuss later. But the ABCDs are basically asymmetry, uh, border irregularity, color variation. D is a diameter greater than 6 millimeters, which is the size of a pencil eraser. And E is evolution, any changes. So that's why it's very important to do a comprehensive exam on yourself as well as having your partner uh, uh, take a look at you because some parts of You can't see your back that well. Exactly. And and I can tell you many stories of uh, spouses of uh, detecting melanoma just specifically on the back. So if you have something that looks really weird and it's asymmetrical, it's not a nice circle, kind of has those jagged edges, a couple of different colors in it, it's big enough and it's growing, then that's something that should alert you, check in to see your doctor or your dermatologist. Absolutely. So now a dermatologist would take a look at it. Would they do a biopsy or would they send you to see somebody if they thought, oh, this definitely is it? They typically do a biopsy, uh, what's called a punch biopsy, where they're just sampling a little portion of this atypical, suspicious-looking lesion. Diagnosis is made, um, melanoma, although not the most common skin cancer, it is the most lethal. And then the whole workup is, is initiated. So when somebody sees a dermatologist and they do that punch biopsy, that's not spreading it. They don't have to worry that a punch biopsy could at all put them at risk. Correct. So once they have the biopsy, it's determined that it's melanoma, then someone would see you because you would need to remove it. I would remove a a, a border of normal tissue called a wide local excision. So you don't only want to get the melanoma itself, but you want to take a border of normal tissue. And then I would also determine whether or not it spread to a lymph node, which is the sentinel lymph node, which is the first major uh, lymph node site that drains that particular part of the skin. So, for example, if you had something on your arm and you took off enough of it to have what they call clear margins, meaning no tumor on the margins, then you would have gotten enough on the skin and you might go to a lymph node in the armpit. Exactly. And then if... Now, can you tell just... And maybe this is where... Dr. Christopher Lum, you come in because you're a dermatopathologist. Can you, when you look at something like this under a microscope, could you look at it and kind of know if it had spread without having to have someone take a look at a lymph node? Or is that always the safest policy? Dr. Lum? Yes. So uh, I, um, I'm a surgical pathologist and I have subspecialty training in uh, cutaneous pathology. And so I've been trained to look at these tumors under the microscope and look at them uh, at the cellular level, and I really represent um, uh, a, a large team of people that take the uh, the biopsy from the dermatologist or the specimen from Dr. Marita, and then we look at it under the microscope. And um, when we look at it, we can see the atypical changes of the cells, and we can see where that margin is, where there is a normal rim of cells, and we can identify whether the margin is clear. Also, uh, there are definitely some morphologic or uh, um, features, microscopic features under the microscope that can predict um, metastases. Usually that is the depth of the lesion, whether the lesion goes uh, beyond a millimeter or greater, uh, whether it is ulcerated, meaning that the surface of the skin has broken down, and uh, what remains is a heme crust or like uh, 
um, a surface that looks kind of like a scab, or where there's a, l- a number of mitotic figures. And what mitotic figures are is a uh, feature of the cell at the uh, microscopic level of uh, what, what the cell looks like when it's dividing. And I can look for that, and those are other features that uh, can predict whether um, this lesion has gone to the lymph nodes. Um, uh, these are very robust prognostic indicators, but they're not perfect. And sometimes, even though you have them, it doesn't mean that it goes to the lymph nodes. Um, it, re- it really means is that when we look at the node that uh, Dr. Marita sends us, that, that would be the really telling thing, whether it's gone um, out of the primary site to uh, distant areas. Now, I remember using a microscope from way back medical school, and there's a classic appearance of a normal, healthy cell. And you can actually see Mm -hmm. cells under a microscope. You know, you have to turn up the power quite a bit. But you can actually do some testing to actually look at an individual cell. And you can see those cells, and you can actually see normal-looking cells, and you can identify all the little parts of it. And then when you look at a cancer cell, it often looks totally different. I mean... From a layperson's point of view, you're looking at something normal and organized versus completely disorganized and jumbled. Mm -hmm. Those are some of those, what you talked about, mitotic features and things that make it look like it's the the further it looks from normal, the worse it is. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, yes. So if it looks kind of normal, but just a little bit off, then that's that's one type of, Mm -hmm. of a problem. But when it starts to look really strange that's when it really has moved far away from being a normal cell and something has turned these cells cancerous and that's what you can actually see under the microscope. Right. Uh, When the cell replicates in a normal fashion, it's a very regular and very well-regulated process. And so the nuclear features are very pristine. The nucleus is round. It doesn't have any um, uh, irregularities in shape. It has a particular color. But as these cells ramp up in, in terms of rapid proliferation, the nucleus doesn't have that same uh, ability to maintain that pristine look. They become larger. They become darker. The nuclear borders become very irregular. Um, I, I can it's kind of ironic. It sounds like we're talking about what it looks like in the skin, too. You know, right, the irregular right. borders, mm-hmm. the dark color. There's definitely a clinical correlation, yes. Ah, interesting. And so that's when you can see it and go, this, this isn't good. Right. Is melanoma obvious as opposed to basal cell and squamous cell cancer? A lot of people have heard about skin cancer. They know there's other types. You mentioned earlier, Dr. Marita, melanoma is the one that we worry the most about because it tends to be the one that's the most serious. You can tell by looking at it under a microscope probably pretty quickly where it comes from. Yes. I mean, uh, in, the, in, 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 the, in the most part, if you think of these as kind of Venn diagrams, uh, in, in general, they represent uh, distinct entities. But there is a small portion that kind of overlap where it's very poorly differentiated and we can't really tell. And uh, um, with that, we have different methodologies and different testing techniques that we use in the laboratory to kind of piece that apart and distinguish that based on protein expression and this type of thing. So um, if it's not just easily morphologically diagnosed just by looking at it under the microscope and just what the histological features are, we can look at it at the subcellular or the protein level and kind of see whether it rep- it, it's it's a... Uh, expressing melanoma proteins, and we, can ha- and we can diagnose it that way also. Well, because that was one of those interesting things they used to do, and I'm sure all of, the, all of you have been through that. You know where they'd show you these slides and say, where on the body did this come from? Mm-hmm. And here you are as a medical student going, wow, 
where did it come from? So you look for certain features that are characteristic of certain parts of the body. And you get you get better at it. You get to do that. But that's what you do all day. I mean, you could look at a slide of anything and say, I know where that came from. In particular, anything in the skin, you would know exactly where it came from. Because that's what you do all day long, which is one of the <laughs> right. advantages of having somebody who has a lot of experience be looking at these slides. Yes, right. I mean, as you look at more and more uh, cases, you become better and better, and begin, you begin to see the subtle nuances of different lesions. And yes, it does help to see it over and over again. Now, Dr. Joe Ramos, here you are. You work at the UH Cancer Center. One of the things that, that you're very familiar with is the fact that it's metastases of melanoma that really cause the big issue. And it's, it's the local area, but it's also where else does it go. And you're also involved in some of the, the cutting-edge ways that we are trying to identify targets to treat skin cancer, to treat melanoma. What's going on in that field, and how? where do you play a role in all this? Because all of you work together as a team, and that's one of the great parts of, of being here together, is that we get to hear about how all of you interact and work together, and what role you play in taking care of individuals who have this diagnosis. All of this can go on behind the scenes, and someone might not know that all these docs are working on their case. Tell us where you fit in. So I guess I should first make a point that uh, we're actually a fairly new team. Um, we had a donor who had uh, who was very interested in helping uh, develop new initiatives for melanoma patients in the island, and so his funding is allowing us to do uh, this new melanoma focus group. And uh, and so and we thank have, you to the donor, <laughs> yes, uh, whomever that is, because that was definitely necessary and needed. And I'm so glad that you guys have the ability and the funding to have this melanoma yeah, group. And so by once we got that in place, you know, we brought Shane in, and he actually has an office he can visit sometimes near me, so we can talk about these things. But the basic, so basically, what I do is I'm I'm very much a basic researcher, and uh, and the you know what we're trying to do is to understand the processes that drive cancer cells. And so cancer cells have, you know, cells basically have information networks. So they know what's around them and they respond to it in certain normally controlled ways. But a lot of those information networks get uh, messed up in cancer cells. And the cancer cells, for example, a normal cell would have its proliferation control. That's the number of times it divides and, and what leads to that tumor growth. A normal cell, you wouldn't have those issues. But cancer cells, they just keep dividing and dividing. That's one of the hallmarks of cancer. They also are eventually can uh, evade the immune system. So they, the immune system normally would try and t attack the cancer and keep it under control. But cancer cells are clever, and they eventually develop mechanisms to block that kind of thing. And then they also don't die in response to normal signals that would tell them they should die for the better of the whole body. So there are a lot of, of these types of changes in information. The cancer cells tweak it such that they continuously grow. They are able then to invade tissues, and you've already heard... Um, uh, Shane mentioned uh, the lymph node is one of the places that he goes to look. That's one of the first places cancer cells would end up uh, if they've invaded the tissues and started to move throughout the body. That's one of the systems, the lymphatic system, the cancer cell can make use of uh, to go from dif to different target organs. Um, and uh, then when they get to those organs, they s they're able to live there. Most of the time, a cell, when it finds itself in a strange place, would not be able to survive there. It wouldn't have what it needs. Cancer cells have everything they need. And so they can then take root in this new target organ and start to grow. And so if that organ is the brain, it, that's bad. If that organ is the lungs or the liver. Um, and so it's the spread of those cancers to those organs that are really important, of course, to maintaining your functionality. 
that is uh, is really what uh, is ends up uh, being the leading to the demise of most patients. So that's that that's the process that we're working on in my lab. And really, when you hear someone like me call himself a, a signaling a cancer signaling guy, that's what we mean. We're trying to understand that information network. Um, and so from and that information network is uh, for us is focused really on what leads to the proliferation or the growth of the cells um, of the tumor, and then leads to those uh, tumor cells to be able to break away from the parent tumor, go into the surrounding tissue, move into the lymphocyte, uh, the, the vasculature, whether it's lymphatic or the blood vessels, and move to new locations and survive. So. One of those pathways has been uh, an area where there's been a lot of success in targeting uh, cancers lately. Um, not to get too technical, but the particular protein that they're targeting is called RAF, and there are a number of different drugs that hit this protein. And by hitting that protein, you can make these tumors melt away some very, very quickly, but the problem is they tend to come back. And so this is where we go bench to bedside. So the bench part was understanding this pathway, this protein is so important, we develop tar- uh, drugs to hit it. We send them to people like Shane. They do clinical trials, test these things. They find out that the patients do great right away, but then suddenly the, the cancer comes back, and it comes back strong. So it so found a way around. It found a way around. So now it comes back from Shane to me, and we start to think, okay, well, how else could we maybe improve this therapy? What other things are, are happening in these cancer cells that come back that we might be able to address? And so we go bench to bedside, bedside to bench, bench to bedside. We go back and forth. It's a communication. I tend to think of people like Shane uh, as being on the front lines. They're like the army that's out there doing the, the battle, and we're sort of the, the, inf- the intelligence network behind them. They have to tell us what they see. Then we try and coalesce the information and develop new approaches, and then we go back in with new arsenals sometimes. So I tend to think of the basic biologist as both first the information. Secondly, we use the information to create an arsenal of different approaches to attack the cancer. So there are drugs that hit that RAF protein I mentioned, and then we have other drugs now that we're developing that go along with that drug to hit other parts of that information network that make the cells just grow and grow and grow. And so that's, that's really what we do. It happens to be that that same pathway, that same network of information, once the cells start to proliferate, it also changes how they, the cells adhere, and it enhances the ability of those cells to move into the tissues. And that's what I'm particularly interested in is what are those, down, what are those things downstream of that one signaling uh, protein that we can also target to keep the cells from moving around. Boy, I could just sit here and listen to you three guys for the rest of the hour. We are going to take a quick break. Again, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. We're talking about what's going on in the world of melanoma and really taking a fascinating, in-depth look at where cancer treatment is headed. I've got my experts here just sitting at the table and talk about an exciting way to hear about what's happening in the world of cancer science. We have Dr. Shane Morita, surgical oncologist. We have Dr. Christopher Lum, dermatopathologist, and Dr. Joe Ramos, and he is a cancer biologist. I'm going to decide that's your title, Joe, because it really describes a lot about what you were saying. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what do cells do differently that make them turn cancerous? And how are we actually going to develop some treatments that are very personalized based on someone's particular tumor and how that can totally revolutionize what we call chemotherapy? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. We're often told we live in a post-feminist era. 
but with ongoing evidence that pay equity is still challenged and media often paying attention to women who get ahead by showing their behinds, what is the state of feminism as we approach 2015? UH Women's Studies professor Ayu Saraswati gives us her opinion. We'll talk tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. On the next Humankind, we travel to a medical school in Ohio to hear from young people training to become tomorrow's doctors. They hope to practice a style of health care defined more by serving patients than the rules of insurance reimbursement. Also, the challenge of maintaining true compassion in today's stressful medical setting. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in a studio with a panel of experts, surgical oncologist Dr. Shane Morita from the University uh, of Hawaii, John Burns School of Medicine, and also currently serving as program director at Queens Medical Center. We have Dr. Christopher Lum, dermatopathologist at Hawaii Pathologist Laboratory, and cancer biologist Dr. Joe Ramos, who is at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center. We're talking about melanoma, and we just heard a really good description of what cancer cells do differently and where are some of the ways that we're moving forward to try and stop them from signaling one another to say, hey, let's go, guys, let's go on an adventure, find some new organ to hang out in, and wreak some havoc. If you or someone you love has melanoma, you can always join us, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, we were talking a little bit earlier, Dr. Morita, about what melanoma looks like. And a lot of times, you know, you could Google melanoma, you could look at the images, and they're looking all sorts of nasty. And a lot of people who see some of these skin lesions, they get it checked out. Hopefully they get it taken care of sooner rather than later. But sometimes something sneaky can can occur, and it may not follow that pathway, that traditional dark-colored, nasty-looking kind of skin lesion. What else... What else can they look like? What are some of the myths of what melanoma is supposed to look like versus what it does? You, you know, one of the things that um, I'll often see um, patients refer to me is that th- they're, they're worried and saying, well, or they're saying, well, it can't be melanoma because, and they'll say, well, it, it wasn't dark. And I'll tell you, there's a, there's a type of melanoma called amelanonic melanoma. Talk about confusing you. It's like not the not dark melanoma. Right. It, you know, lack of pigment. Also, melanoma does not only need to arise from the skin. It can be within someone's nose. It can be within someone's intestine. It can be within someone's mouth. So we've had patients refer to us from dentists. We've had patients refer to us from gastroenterologists. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging uh, disease. But other things that I hear as well, it can't happen to me because, I, you know, I'm, I'm not fair-skinned. And I will tell you that melanoma can happen in our in our population, our minority population, um, in fact, when we did some research into this, we found that the 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 risk of death is actually twofold um, in comparison to uh, our our European Caucasian counterparts. So when they get it, it's worse. Correct, because many times the the diagnosis is is delayed. Or do you think sometimes people just 
do they have, do more of the amelanotic or not dark colored melanomas occur in people who have darker skin or lighter skin or do we not know? I don't don't think that that's been um, gleaned. I think one of the things that we worry about is that the the distribution of melanoma may be different in our minority population, can can be in areas that are sun protected i.e. The, the palms or even the nail beds or or, or the soles so of it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense correct but on the other hand we can't assume all melanoma is sun related i mean a lot correct. of it is correct but like you said i've seen actually people with melanoma of the intestines and i had a patient who passed away recently who had melanoma of the the nose mm-hmm. and behind the eye and I mean, these are areas that never saw sun. Exactly. And, you know, Bob Marley died in 1981 from acromelanoma. It affected his foot. So, um, you know, it can be 85% of melanoma is related to UV radiation, but there's different mechanisms. So. Well, and I think genetics plays a big role. We've got a caller on the line. We're going to talk with Greg from Kailua. Then we'll talk a little bit about genetics. Greg, welcome to The Body Show. Uh, thank you. Uh, I had a quick question that I'll just ask and then uh, listen for the response on air. Okay. Uh, my question is, uh, are we in any danger of creating drug-resistant cancers uh, by virtue of our treatments, kind of the way we are you know, creating drug-resistant bacteria? What a great question, Greg, because, you know, there's this huge wave in the field of infectious disease about the overuse of antibiotics, and I was just reading today about some superbug that's down in Brazil, and they're worried about this infecting people for the upcoming Olympics, and it's resistant to antibiotics. And and yet, with cancer, we throw a lot of really strong chemotherapy at different cancer cells. And so I'm curious, because since you generally don't necessarily catch cancer from anyone else, but if you do bombard someone with a lot of chemotherapy, that cancer, their cancer, can become resistant. Is this why we're moving towards the field of immunotherapy and cancer genetics? Dr. Lamamine, do you see this as one of the reasons why we are moving towards more personalized treatment? Let's see. Um, I think that uh, the, in, in terms of the question, I, I, it's, a little, it's a little different than an infectious organism in that you know, it's, it's not communicable, like you said. Um, so it, if you get a resistant cell, you're not going to give it to somebody else. Right. It, okay. it, 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 was, it had begun as something resistant. And I think that the, the therapies that we have now um, are better in that they are more targeted to the actual pathway that it is, uh, that is uh, aberrant and causing the cell to proliferate. And uh, yes, what happens is after you treat it with, this, with these molecular targeted therapies, while it works exquisitely, it ultimately uh, regains proliferative function eventually. But what has been so exciting is the fact that for melanoma, where, where the treatments were very limited, we have therapies now that are uh, very effective. And just to see that type of efficacy was very staggering and very exciting. And so uh, it's unlikely to have uh, one drug to cause a, a shutdown of that proliferative cycle. But what it probably means is that there's a multiple or a combination of different molecular targeted therapies that will be very beneficial to uh, cancer therapy. So it's, it's unlikely that um, using these drugs um, is in a bad way causing resistance. It's just that uh, the cancer cell has the ability to find a way to proliferate, and it's, it's, it's mutagenic. 
that its genome is unstable and it is finding a way to constantly grow. And it's our ability, and it's up to people like uh, Dr. Ramos to find new targets to be able to uh, modulate that proliferative cycle to shut down that cell. Dr. Ramos, you mentioned something before the break, and you said cancer cells are sneaky. And if they happen to respond to this particular targeted treatment for RAF, which is one of the things that was one of those pathways, when it comes back, it comes back with a vengeance. Right. Any idea why? Well, I mean, what Greg said is actually uh, exactly the sort of thing, but within the single patient. Uh, so, yes, the, we don't create cancer cells that are resistant that spread to other people. But within the patient, once we've treated them with a chemotherapy, they actually the cancer, when it does come back, is now resistant to that chemotherapy. It's found a way around it's it. It's found a way around it. Usually there's some other something in the cell that it's up, turned up or down to compensate. And so it sneaks around it. And that's why I said uh, we need sort of to develop an arsenal. Uh, if you come at the cancer and you come at it hard initially, the hope is, and, and with personalized medicine, you've mentioned that, and I do think we should talk more about that, um, that maybe we can uh, put a halt to it and permanently uh, uh, get rid of the, the tumor. And then the other component of that, that, the other exciting therapy, so I mentioned the one, the RAF, and now you've mentioned a couple of times the, the, the comment about the immunotherapies. Now, this is the one where a lot of the newest breakthroughs are coming. So it's been a really exciting time for melanoma research just in the last five to ten years, all of these really amazing new uh, approaches coming about. So the immunotherapies are the ones, one of them just got FDA approved a couple of months ago, I think, um, and uh, these look incredibly powerful. Uh, basically, what you're doing in those cases is you're tuning the patient's immune system. So as I, I mentioned right when I gave my overview, <laughs> if you will, uh, the, one of the things cancer cells do is they start to evade the immune system. They hide from it. And the way they do that is they have certain ways that they can signal those, the, those, tu- those immune c- cells to ignore me. Well, we've got these new therapies that basically tell the immune cells, stop ignoring that cancer, go get them. And, uh, and so uh, essentially, we, uh, these new treatments activate your immune system again to do what it's designed to do, which is to go after that, uh, that, that, that thing that's damaging your body and get rid of it. And that's probably one of the most exciting things we've had in melanoma ever, actually, for therapeutics. Um, and uh, I know Shane's excited about it. That's, he talks to me about it uh, quite frequently. And so because of this, we're also trying to develop new research in my lab to move in that direction. And we're collaborating with the lab in Portland now and working on this a different way of getting those immune cells to, to, to turn on and go after the cancer. And presumably if the immune cell went after the cancer, it would be less likely to come back. That's the hope. Correct. Uh, you know, what we're seeing in targeted therapy where you're going after one gene such as or protein such as BRAF is that you, you have a high response rate, but you don't have durability. With the immunotherapy in, in general until now, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of mention some new drugs, but um, you, you won't see as much of a response rate, but the, the durability is, is, is better. Um, there's just been a drug that, you know, uh, Joe just mentioned, uh, FDA-approved, called pembrolizumab. And what it is is it's an antibody against PD-1, which is programmed death. And what it does is essentially enhances the, the immune system. And so there's going to be another one, um, I think, that's going to be FDA-approved within the next six months called nivolumab, also a PD-1 um, an- antibody. So since 2011, and just to mention what Joe said, elaborate, is that there, we've had six new drugs FDA approved. Um, and there's going to be a seventh, I think, within the next six to 12 months called Nivolumab. So. And contrasting that with 
malignant melanoma treatment five years ago. I mean, we didn't have a whole lot. Correct, correct. Uh, you know, when I was at NCI, I remember them, uh, you know, trying to develop uh, one of these newer drugs, ipilimumab, which again en- enhances the immune system. And but before then, we, we really didn't have much. Um, we we gave patients interleukin two, which are very toxic. They end up in the intensive care u- unit. And so what you have to remember is anytime you give a drug or you do any type of therapy, you always want to look at the, the, the risk-benefit ratio. And some of these um, you know, therapies can be extremely uh, toxic, so, um, and it can hurt patients, just like how radiation can hurt patients, chemotherapy can hurt patients, surgery can hurt. You know, there's nothing that's without, uh, without side effects. Well, and I think the other issue is untreated proliferating cancer can hurt patients as well. Absolutely. You know, a lot of times when they first come out with some of these trials, they're just trying to see if somebody is toxic with the dose or not. Correct. And then after that, does it actually do any good? And then does it do better than current therapy? So those are some of the general ideas of phases of different trials and medicines because, you know, you you don't necessarily know what will happen when you give a therapy. Correct. But we do know that if you let that cancer continue... We know the evolution of that. Absolutely. And, and as w- has been mentioned previously, as with most cancers, patients die because of metastatic disease. When it's spread to different organs, cancers are, I view them, they're, they're just very selfish organisms or creatures. They go and they, they rob all the, the, the normal nutrients and, and blood supply and what have you of, of patients. And so without some type of therapy, um, you know, they will continue to, to It just continues take over. to spread. Absolutely. It takes over. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Jane from Kaneohe. Jane, welcome to the Body Show. Aloha. Thank Aloha. you very much. And um, and I wanted to um, express that I'm glad that you guys talked about the different ways that melanoma looks because the one I had was totally different than what, you know, what you normally expect. Um, I'm a white woman. I was 45 when I was diagnosed, and I went in for, my sister had been bugging me about a mole I had, and, you know, she said, go in and get it checked, and the mole still looks the same, you know, 10 years later, but um, it was a more of a subdermal um, type thing that was just a pinprick with a white dot on top, but it was, uh, that was what ended up that the, um, that my dermatologist saw and said, you better check that out. And we got a biopsy, and that's what it was. And I was fortunate that I caught it right at that time because it was that simple thing of go check out something else. And when I checked that out, it was actually found. I would have never gone in for that, never. I mean, I felt it, but I felt like it was a, you know, a, I just felt like it was something normal on the leg. And, and so um, you, you didn't see it really change much, but then when you had it checked out, it turns out there was something going on underneath what you could see. It looked like, you know, when, you're, when a woman shaves her legs and she, you know, gets a little like, a, it's, it looked like an ingrown hair, just a little pimple on an ingrown hair. And it was what was underneath, that was it. Wow. So you had it taken care of and treated. Yes. And I was very lucky that it's come it has never come back, and I still go in for all my appointments. The other thing I wanted to check in was that, um, so I've had, I've had melanoma. I have a sister who has breast cancer, severe breast cancer right now, and will not live from it. And I have another sister that passed away from colon cancer. 
and I wanted to hear about the um, similarities or the tie-in between those. those. Interesting, Jane, because there's totally separate situations, but I think we're just now learning about how genetics plays a huge role. Right. I wanted to see what University of Hawaii um, has with or, or is using with that because that's what we've heard as family members, um, as siblings, is hmm, that's an interesting... Uh, one of my sisters is going to UCSF, and, um, and that's what she's hearing is there could be some tie-in, but I didn't know any enough about it. Well, and it's an interesting it's an interesting question because you're mentioning breast and colon cancer, which we know sometimes come in clusters, and then melanoma, which is just not necessarily in the same cluster that we think of automatically, but still, it really makes you wonder: is there something genetic and underlying it? And you know, I'm curious, Dr. Lum. Let's talk about genetics for a moment. What does that mean? And when you're looking at something underneath a microscope. Is there any similarity between different types of tumors and the ability to determine if there's a genetic mutation or not? There's certain tests that are done for certain types of tumors to say, hey, does this look more like a melanoma versus more like another type of tumor? And all of that's based on genetics. Is there a common theme? And maybe we don't know about it yet. Yes. I mean, that's a, this is a very exciting development in, term, in the field of laboratory diagnostics. And um, in general, morphologically or under the microscope, the way it looked um, microscopically was very different. Uh, there were different tumor types that had very different characteristics from tumor to tumor. Since the advent of the human, uh, the human Genome Project and the ability to sequence the whole genome, the whole exome or all the coding um, sequences in our genome, uh, genetic information is much more available to the clinical laboratory now. And we are finding, yes, that uh, you can cluster certain tumors not based on morphology but based on the certain pathways that are affected. And so um, in, the, in the past, what we used to have to do is we would test one gene at a time and it would have to be sent out and it would take months at a time to get r- results back. But now with the, with the advent of newer technology called next-generation sequencing, we can sequence um, DNA much faster and with the... Much more um, depth or redundancy in uh, in our ability to examine that sequence very closely and and ensure reliability of what the sequence code is, and really relate tumors based on their genetic uh, alterations and uh, are beginning to kind of look past some of those uh, morphologic features. So yes, this is a very exciting time for that type of clustering of uh, tumors. I see, Dr. Ramos, you're shaking your head like, yeah, this is what we're doing. Yeah, this exactly is what's happening right. in the lab. Yeah, I mean, I just went to a talk today, actually. I mean, we're starting to reclassify tumors based on their genetics and in some detail because we have this capability now to uh, to really, really barrel down into the entire genome of a patient's tumor. Um, and that's led to a, a lot of uh, novel uh, findings regarding how tumors that seem quite different actually have certain things in common. And so it wouldn't be surprising, perhaps, if there was something in this family that might link all of this, but it's not certain that it would. Um, uh, there certainly, I, I, I can't think of anything that isn't totally in common with all of these, but there are always some uh, early mutations that happen in cancer cells. So one example is there's a protein called P53. It's one of the, these proteins that gets mutated in almost 
50% of all cancers, and it usually seems to happen early on. And what that protein seems to do is it regulates the genome. It makes sure that the cells have a, a solid, properly uh, uh, copied genome before they go on. And so if you take that away, they start to accumulate more and more mutations is the idea, and, uh, and you can get uh, tumor cells arising from that. So there are lots of mutations that different, very different types of cancers can have in common. Um, but uh, but uh, this is uh, an area that uh, maybe uh, Shane has a few thoughts on, too, because yeah. I know he's working a lot on the genetics. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's you know, uh, Joe had mentioned mutation. I think just for the layperson, it's, it's important to know and understand the difference between these different mutations. And, and sort of simplistically, when I, when I explain to someone about a mutation, it can be what we call hereditary or what we call germline or it can be sporadic, which is what, what's acquired. So a lot of the genes and genomics, genetics, if you will, um, has to do with most, most cancers that have these mutations. It's acquired. It's within the tumor cell, and it's not something that can be passed on to your, to your to children. So I just wanted to get that clarified because many times the public will be under perception that genes, it's only about... Be, hereditary component being passed on, but that's not true. When we talk about mutations in cancer, for the vast majority, it's sporadic or acquired uh, Yeah, I could say something that, you know, sounds really simplistic, but I think it's a really good analogy. It's like playing the game Whisper Down the Lane. So you got one person who says something, they whisper it to somebody else, who whispers it to somebody else, who whispers, 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 and at the very end of that chain, you have somebody telling something that is totally different than what it started off with. And all the different development of how that statement became different, like somebody said, you know, Johnny stole my stuff, and the next thing you know, it's somebody else is having a party, and it's totally different than what you started off with. It's all those little things that change from one person to the next. Genetically, it's all those little modifications that can take a normal gene or a normal genetic replication of cells, which happens for all of us, and turn it into something totally different. And if you don't have your P53 to go Mm -hmm. ahead and make sure that everything is exactly a copy of what started, you might make a weird copy of something that could develop a mutation that has occurred in your body that you weren't born with it. But now it's this weird new thing. It's this new statement that never started out like that that becomes the replicating tumor. Absolutely. And, you know, Joe had mentioned P53, which is, you know, it's actually one of the most um, famous uh, genes. It's a tumor suppressor gene. It, it suppresses tumors. So if you don't um, have enough of that, you're not suppressing well, anything. Sure. So, and, you know, it was it was actually the syndrome was coined at the NIH, Lee Framini. So... There's many different, uh, you know, uh, interactions that, that genes and proteins play in cancer. And cancer is just not a straightforward entity. It's very heterogeneous. Um, you know, just those that that uh, that woman Jane had mentioned those three cancers. I can tell you that as far as a sporadic or acquired mutation, what I can see in in colon, and um, I think she mentioned melanoma is is BRAF, for example, the BRAF protein. It's an acquired mutation. And then with breast cancer and melanoma, on, on, the, uh, on the other end is, is a germline, can be a BRCA. So BRCA patients can get, you know, melanoma. So it's, it's, there's a lot of inter- interplay. Well, and when we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk some more about where we headed. We've got a lot of information. The field is changing dramatically. 
and where do our experts today think we're going? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. I've got Dr. Shane Morita, surgical oncologist, Dr. Christopher Lum, dermatopathologist, and Dr. Joe Ramos, cancer biologist. And when we come back, we're going to take a little a little view into the future and where do we think some of these treatments are going to head to in the near future and maybe the far future. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Getting the homeless population in a big city into good, safe housing is no easy thing. So Los Angeles is experimenting. No one disputes the fact that it's a less expensive and more humane way to care for someone. I'm Kai Rizdal. Apartments designed for the homeless. Next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. I yelled. He nodded. That's good, I said, because I want you to know that we're on our way to Las Vegas to find the American dream. I'm Stephen Colbert. This week on Selected Shorts, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Shane Morita, surgical oncologist, Dr. Christopher Lum, dermatopathologist, and Dr. Joe Ramos, cancer biologist. And we're talking about melanoma. And if you've got a question, boy, have I got amazing experts here today who might be able to shed some light on to what's going on. 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, uh, gentlemen, we were just talking with Jane, talking a little bit about cancer genetics. Our field of treatment for melanoma in particular has revolutionized over the last just few years, and we're still at the forefront of what's going on. If you were to guess where we're headed in the next five years, where do you think that would be? And everybody, I'm going to ask all of you. So Dr. Shane, you're a surgical oncologist. You remove the tumor, remove the lymph nodes, and then coordinate and work with your team to figure out what to do next for treatment. Fast forward five years, maybe 10, what do you think is going to be different? You know, I think we'll just have better treatments for removing melanoma after we, for taking care of melanoma patients after we remove any visible visible tumor I think we're going to be looking at a lot of incorporation of the immune system with some of these molecular targets, such as what we talked about with BRAF. Um, also, I think the traditional chemotherapeutic agents, such as the carbazine, is not going to be rendered effective at all with just with better better options. And I'll be I think we'll be better able to determine uh, the the response or predict someone's response to to therapy, not only with the the targets but just the immune system. So we're really going to head away from our traditional chemotherapy that we think of causing a lot of side effects, hair loss, blood count issues, nausea, vomiting, just what everybody thinks of when they hear chemo. We're going to find better targets. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dr. Lum, you're up. Um, I think that um, the way that we uh, diagnose and prognose in terms of telling a patient how aggressive their tumor is um, is going to dramatically change in that we're going to be able to approach these tumors genomically. And what does that mean? It means that we're going to be able to identify what the changes are in terms of the 
the uh, the tumor's coding sequence, what the the actual gene variations are. We're going to be able to look at the protein expression and the uh, um, the RNA or the um, the way that uh, a protein is made. It, it it goes from DNA to RNA to protein. So looking at changes in RNA and expression patterns of RNA is also very important for melanoma in terms of whether it's aggressive or not. So approaching it in this type of multi-level way of, uh, of looking at the, the true pathway of going from DNA, RNA, and protein is going to be very important for, uh, uh, for the patient in terms of the, how aggressive it is and what types of uh, therapies are going to be amenable to that tumor. All right. Dr. Ramos. So I guess I'll start with a quote. One of my favorite sayings is by Sun Tzu, which is, know your enemy, know yourself, and you'll fight a thousand battles without a loss. I think we've gotten to know our enemy really, really well. And uh, with the kinds of, of things that Dr. Lum was just talking about, we'll be able to actually understand the patient's cancer very, very well. And even a tumor within a patient, doesn't each cell in that tumor might have different mutations within the tumor. That's one of the complicating things we've learned just in the last couple of years. It's called tumor heterogeneity. So if we can identify the various mutations that make up that tumor, then we also have developed new arsenals. So that's the part where we know ourselves. We have to know what weapons we have that are tuned to what that patient has. So then we know the patient, we know our weapons, we match the weapons to the patient. So we match the drugs that we have available to best attack that patient's melanoma. And I think if we start fighting the war at sort of in a, on the ground like that, we're going to have more and more cures, more and more victories uh, in, in 10 years. That's what I, I, I just think it's going to happen, actually. I don't think I'm being overly optimistic. I think that's where we're headed. Maybe it won't be 10 years, but uh, you know, within my lifetime, I think we'll be able to really have more and more cures uh, for the melanomas that aren't caught early. And again, one of our, our, our callers already made that point. You can, the first line of defense is to catch it early and go see Shane. And the second line of defense is what we do with attacking. Right. If it's gone and a little far and it's that. already spread, then we need to have weapons to go after it. All right. We've got a caller. We've got Kevin from Pacific Heights. Kevin, welcome to The Body Show. Yes. Hi, uh, Kathleen. Great show. Um, Dr. Ramos, uh, just to dovetail your thought about the... Uh, the analogy with uh, weaponry and such. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to changing the environment in which uh, the cancer has created um, mutations uh, and defenses, such as the production of fibrinogen or uh, its use of galactin-3 or nagalase and, and those realms and what's going on over at UH uh, Cancer Research Center and the study of those things that really make it difficult for the immune system to do its job which I think has, speaks a lot to why, you know, post-chemo or post-genetic uh, approaches, um, despite the mutations, the immune system really, or with the mutations, the immune system really doesn't have much of a chance. Thank you. Interesting questions, Kevin, and I'm going to let Dr. Ramos handle galactinase 3. <laughs> well, we, it sounds the, like a the simple answer. battle, but I'm, I'm going <laughs> to leave this one to you because Kevin's got a really good question and you've got a simple answer. I'm, I'm yeah, all ears. The simple answer is that we, well, f to the first part, which is what's happening at the cancer center with regard to those specific things. Nothing right now. We haven't, uh, we don't have any researchers looking at that specific part of the problem. Um, you know, basically uh, we have of people uh, 
doing diverse things, but within melanoma, there's only a few groups, and that's what we're trying to do here now and is with the, the help of the donor and with Shane coming over more is to create a nucleus of people really focused on melanoma. But, uh, yeah, we, we don't have any research in that area. That's actually close to the, my background. I came from what's called the extracellular matrix uh, area of research. Um, so probably by all rights, Kevin, I should be the one looking into that. Uh, but, but that's not something we've hit on yet. But that's another component of knowing the enemy better is what I think he was making the point of. And so there's more than just the mutations. There's more than just the immune system. We actually need to understand the microenvironment of the tumor. So it's a very good point. So it's what's in the cell. What's, what's outside the, the cell, cell what's around it, yeah. and what we can do to help out to target treatment. Now, we've sort of talked a little bit about personalized treatment. And, we, you know, it's interesting because before we started, Dr. Lummi, you and I were talking, and I said a lot of times in, in what I do in general internal medicine, they're kind of moving towards algorithms. Everybody should do something the same way. Everybody with blood pressure should try this drug, this drug, this drug, and this drug, and one of those four in that order will help. And it's kind of making medicine seem less personalized and more pathway. And yet there's a, you know, not everybody can be treated the same. And that whole adage, one size fits all, really means one size doesn't fit anybody really well. And yet it sounds to me like a lot of what's happening in cancer treatment is the exact opposite. It's let's not do the pathway of what we've always done for everybody with this. Let's go ahead and personalize it to an individual situation with their genetic component, their particular tumor cell. And I'm curious, do you think we'll ever get to the point, and maybe we are at that point now, where instead of testing a medicine on a patient, we test a medicine on a tumor before we give it to a patient? Will we ever get to the point where if we take out someone's tumor and we say, okay, we found they have this tumor, let's try and treat that tumor with various medications and see if it's resistant before we actually try those medications on an individual. And it's it's kind of complicated, but I, I'm wondering if that's where we're headed. So instead of, hey, I'm so sorry you're resistant to that particular immunotherapy, now it's, I know you're not resistant because I've tested your tumor and it's responsive to that. Mm-hmm. Or is that kind of just piggybacking on what you said, Dr. Ramos, which is once you know the pathways, you treat the pathways. Just as a quick comment, and your your listeners can Google it, there was a news story that circulated just within the last few days about uh, patients who are now paying to have their tumors grown in mice and test various drug combinations in the mice. avatar mice, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the avatar mice, that would be probably a good way to Google it. Uh, and so there are people who are actually doing that now. They, I think it costs around $10,000 or something, so it's not something available to everyone. And it's unclear what the success will be from doing that, that ahead of time. But it is a way, I suppose, of testing the individual patient's tumor cells and how they respond to certain chemotherapeutics that we have available at the moment. Um, but uh, I think, yes, we'll be doing more and more of that testing when we can do so. Um, but again, uh, sometimes it will be obvious also that we can first uh, preload it with a knowledge based on their genomes um, to figure out which cancer therapeutics are most likely to succeed. And then uh, uh, even with the immune therapies, there's an element of that where you need to know whether they have the PD-1 or not. And so there's a, an element there where you also need to know a little bit about, um, about the patient's genetics. But I do think that we're, al- we're already sort of getting there, and, uh, and that's what I'm thinking. It's going to get better and better over the next few years. Now, you guys have you're, you've done this wonderful collaboration, and a lot of people who have been listening, I'm sure, are wondering, how can they hear more? 
and what else is going on and how can the doctors but also the lay public find out about what are the latest treatments and what is the investigation going on in science. And you have an upcoming event. Now, it's a few months away. It's in May. But tell me a little bit about why I should get so excited and plan on coming. Well, you know, May is Melanoma Awareness Month. And, um, you know, with the with the help of the donor and just our collaborations with Queens and the University of Hawaii and the Cancer Center and the medical school, I mean, we all wear different hats. Um, we're going to be putting on a symposium on, on May 1st focused on strictly on melanoma, talking about the, the treatments and a lot of advances. But Yeah, and, and again, this is sort of the kick the kickoff of, official or formal kickoff of uh, our melanoma group at that time. We are incorporating uh, in that symposium uh, both prevention and control people. People understand how to prevent things, uh, prevent cancer. Uh, So Kevin Castle is part of that group as well. Shane will be talking from the clinical viewpoint. We'll have an a internationally renowned clinical investigator, also basic researcher, and then um, maybe even a patient uh, will be speaking there. So we're going to try and sort of give the overview, uh, just as your radio shows attempted to do today. We're going to do that uh, in person at the symposium. Well, and time has flown. I mean, we have just a few more minutes left, and I can only imagine how much more we could get to if we had all day. And it sounds like this symposium is a great opportunity for anybody out there who's interested or who is intrigued by a lot of the stuff that we said today to really get more information about what's going on. I think we have this this unsung hero that the Cancer Center has really has really brought to the forefront the fact that a lot of excellent, top-notch research is happening right here in the islands. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, that you can now get treated for a lot of your medical conditions with cutting-edge research right here at home. And that's something that sometimes folks forget. Dr. Marina, last couple of thoughts. Uh, I just tell people with melanoma, um, you, you know, there's so many advances. I, I've seen patients that, you know, come to me in very difficult predicaments and, and, and they benefit and, and, you know, they're alive. So I, I just tell patients that early detection is, is the key, but even if you get diagnosed late, you know, it's not a death sentence. There's very, there's, it used you know, to different be, options. But Absolutely. now it isn't. Right. Okay. I mean, there's different options. As I said, there's going to be a new drug uh, I think F- going to be FDA approved nivolumab, and you know the the early indications, the one year survival is is seventy three percent. So, I mean there is a, and that's for advanced disease. So there's a lot of promise. I and you know certain things that uh, I always tell people for prevention is we we do many people don't realize that the most common cancer that affects uh, individuals twenty five to twenty nine years of age is melanoma. And so uh, prevention can be just avoiding a, a tanning, tanning salon. And, you know, as much as it looks great to have a tan, it's not that great in the long run. I want to thank all of you for being on the show today, Dr. Shane Morita, surgical oncologist, Dr. Christopher Lum, dermatopathologist, Dr. Joe Ramos, cancer biologist. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us today. I look forward to hearing more about the conference in May because if it's anything like our discussion today, I'll be in the front row. <laughs> If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week right here at 5 on The Body Show. See you then.